0: The first reading is taken from Revelation chapter 6, verses 9 to 11. This is on page 1,238. That's 1,238. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony that they had maintained. They called out in a loud voice, How long, Sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? Then each of them was given a white robe, and they were told to wait a little longer, until the number of their fellow servants and brothers, who were to be killed as they had been, was completed. This is the word of the Lord. The second reading is from Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 to 11, and can be found on page 1234 of your church Bible. To the angel of the church in Smyrna, write These are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for ten days. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt at all by the second death. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks. Thanks be to God.
1: Well, please do uh, keep that second passage open. we we'll are camping out there uh, for the course of the sermon. Thank you to our readers. But do keep page 1234, which is a pleasing page number, if there was one in the Bible, open. I'm going to pray as we begin. We've just said we look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would teach us to look for that day more, to trust you for that day more, that you would change the way we live now and our priorities now. Please speak to us as you spoke directly to Smyrna. For your name's sake. Amen. Fear. There is a lot of uh, bluster about in our day and age, 21st century, about fear. If you uh, plug that little four-letter word into Google search engine, uh, you will find all sorts of um, psychobabble talking about fear being a weakness that we need to overcome, a self-imposed weakness, fear. But when we think about fear clearly, fear is a helper, isn't it? Fear is a friend. It is a good thing that I am afraid of getting too close to naked flames, generally speaking, or being in a room with a bear, or going too close to the edge of a cliff. We worry about um, toddlers who have an underdeveloped sense of fear because we recognize that fear is a good thing. Fear protects us. It sort of preserves our lives. And therefore, since fear can be a friend to us, I must say I am very cautious indeed when somebody tells me not to be afraid of something I am afraid of, very cautious. When that happens, I need to assess the credentials of the person who is speaking to me very carefully indeed. I need to ask, do they fully recognize the danger of which I am afraid? Uh, What do they know about that danger that I don't know? What can they do about that danger that I can't do? I need to know the person comforting me before I allow myself to be comforted by them. Because generally speaking, it's good to be afraid of some things in life. Have a look down at verse 10 in this little letter to the church in Smyrna. Here somebody is writing to us To say exactly that, verse 10, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Now we're continuing our, our, our series in the book of Revelation and we find ourselves here in the second of seven letters written to churches located in modern day Turkey. We think they're written about 60 to 70 A.D. Our letter, if you look down at verse 8, is written to the angel of the church, that is, either a sort of heavenly guardian of the church or the leader of the church, the angel of the church in a place called Smyrna. That is, modern-day Izmir in Turkey. I think some of us here have been there. And by and large, this letter follows the pattern that the other letters follow in Revelation. It opens with a reminder of some pertinent aspects of Jesus' character, and his behavior, you'll see that in verse 8. Goes on with an assessment of the church in question, uh, verse 9. And then exhortations, or in some cases warnings, verse 10. Closes with a wonderful promise to hold on to in verse 11. And the only significant difference in this letter today is that there is no rebuke in it. It's one of only two letters in Revelation where there's no rebuke contained. It's to encourage Smyrna. And what we're going to do now, I suggest, is collectively as a church, pick this letter up off the doormat where it's landed, open the envelope, and read it with a highlighter in hand and maybe a red pen to underline some bits. And as we do that, I suggest that we take note of what it is we are not to fear and assess the credentials of the one who is writing to us. First, if you're a note taker, you'll see on the back of the red notice sheet the first heading I know your afflictions. It's one of the first things we read in the letter I know your afflictions. We dive into verse 9 I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Now we know at the time of writing that Smyrna was a wealthy city. It had grown fat, living at a conjunction of great trade and business routes, and the profit margins were sizable in Smyrna. We know that it boasted a famous library for learning, a famous stadium for athletics, and the largest amphitheater on the continent. They were covering sport, intellectualism, and culture. It was one of the principal cities of Roman Asia. Burberry, Portia, Paul Smith, they would all have had headquarters there. At least they would have wanted headquarters there. It was wealthy. And yet at the same time, it seems that the church in Smyrna, Christian people in Smyrna, were not wealthy. Did you see there in that verse? They were afflicted and they were poor. Now, a number of things contributed to that. It may be that they'd literally been pillaged, had property stolen from them, houses stolen from them because of their Christian faith. We don't know. It may be that they just simply refused to join in with the ritual idolatry in the city, and as a consequence, people had dropped them from their LinkedIn networks they had no longer been invited to the business networking drinks and therefore their profit margins had shrunk. It may even be, as the end of verse 9 suggests, that the significant Jewish population there had sort of grasped on them to the Roman authorities as people who didn't worship Caesar. But whatever the specific reason was, the Christians in Smyrna were in their overdrafts and they were very conscious that they didn't have much money at the end of the month. Maybe they were unemployed and they were being slandered behind their backs and in front of their faces. And to say the least, that must have been hard for them, don't you think? Let's take poverty, for example. Poverty is hard not only because we need money to live, but it's hard for all sorts of other reasons, isn't it? We tend to attribute personal value uh, to a salary or to wealth. If anyone here has ever been unemployed, you will know that it hits more than your bank account. It hits your self-esteem. And here were a, a church, a collection of people who were severely undervalued in this city, w- worthless in the eyes of their neighbors around them. They didn't deserve any money. They deserved to be cut out. Of the networks. And to top it all, they had to cope in their poverty with living in a wealthy city, a city dripping with wealth. Where the cars, the houses, the salons, the suits that people wore all taunted them, rubbing their poverty in their face. And the point is this Jesus Christ writes to them and he says, I know your afflictions and your poverty i know the lord jesus christ writing this letter knows what they are going through and friends it may be that there are some here for whom that is a deep comfort indeed i don't know i'm not a mind reader but it may be that somebody here has chosen a job where they just don't earn as much as they could but as a result of christian ethics and actually passing the boutiques and the shops in this area, and seeing the pop-up ads as they use the internet, it's kind of a battle. Because maybe you're thinking, I could have afforded that if I'd taken that job, but I didn't because I'm a Christian. And Jesus says, I know. It may be that you're giving your money away so radically as a Christian that you cannot keep up with the Joneses, or your colleagues, or the neighbours their holidays and their cars and their children's education and the whole list goes on and you just can't keep up with them. And Jesus says, I know. Or maybe you're a teenager here and you just find it hard that you're going to the Christian meeting at school and you know that you could be popular if you didn't. You're good at sport, and, you know, well-liked. But you know people talk behind your back because you go to that tiny gaggle of people who are slight misfits And Jesus says, I know, I know your afflictions as a result of your faith. Or maybe you feel increasingly ostracized because you prioritize coming to church on a Sunday compared to socializing with the in crowd on a Sunday. And Jesus says, I know, I know your afflictions. Don't you find sometimes it's tempting to write Christ off as an idealist? I remember as a teenager receiving life advice from, let's call her Aunt Agatha, and I was in no position to take that life advice because, frankly, she didn't understand the world as it really was for me. She was entirely removed from teenage living. And sometimes we can think of Christ like that. He's an idealist. He writes us a letter at Christmas, gives us some advice which we routinely ignore because he's kind of removed from the situation. But that's not the case here, is it? He knows. He knows us as we really are. He knows our Monday to Friday, our Saturday to Sunday. He knows our hearts. I know your afflictions and your poverty. He's not a nutcase, which is worth bearing in mind when we come to the second heading here because it might sound a bit nutty. Heading number two, he says, Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. Verse 10, it's, it's there. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, he says, and you will suffer persecution for a limited period of time for ten days. It seems that the Smyrnian situation was really sort of hotting up, and there was more trouble on the horizon for the church. I'm sure we'd all agree that poverty is one thing, but prison, that's quite another, it's a stepping up. In the seriousness. And Jesus says, don't be afraid, even of prison. I think there are three categories, broadly speaking, of, of human fear. Uh, see what you think. But maybe first, fear about uh, possessions or, or money or wealth. We fear losing it. And the Smyrnian Christians had been there. They'd done that, got that T-shirt, poverty. Second, fears relating to other people what they think of me. It's why public speaking is one of the most feared things, apparently. And the Smyrnian Christians had been there, done that, got the T-shirt, uh, slander. And then the third category might relate to things like pain or punishment. And interestingly, Jesus says, don't fear all those things, pain, punishment, prison, because it, not because it won't come, but just don't fear it despite it coming. Don't be afraid of it. Now, by and large, I think that the people who get locked up in this country are the right people. By and large. I think we've got a fair justice system. I I, I take it there are some exceptions, which would be tragic, but by and large, it's fair. But there's the odd thing in public debate at the moment which gives me pause for thought as a Christian. Most most especially these anti-extremist laws which are coming through, drafted at the moment. They look set to outlaw, and I I quote here, the vocal or active opposition to fundamental British values, including democracy, the rule of law, individual liberty, and the mutual respect and tolerance of different faiths and beliefs. Now, that is all well and good, except it is so broad and hard to define that I think it may put Orthodox Christianity at real risk within our lifetimes. I think it could be dangerous for the church. What would these laws make of Jesus' orthodox stance on sexual ethics, or his exclusive truth claims in the modern marketplace of religious truth claims? I don't know, even when those things are proclaimed in generous love. And if things are about to hot up here in the UK for the church, as they were in Smyrna, Jesus Christ says, do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. Don't be afraid. But why? Begs the question, doesn't it? Why would I not be afraid of going to prison? To be honest, that's the stuff of nightmares. It's a horrible thing. Why on earth would I not be afraid of that? Well, before we're given the reason, another imperative comes straight at us in this letter from Christ. It's a big one. End of verse 10. Be faithful even to the point of death. In other words, if I could put it this way, if living as a Christian is made illegal, don't be afraid of serving your sentence. And if living as a Christian is made lethal, don't be afraid of holding to it, even if it kills you. Be faithful even to the point of death. There's a Christian living in Smyrna at the time this letter was uh, written and and received, and he was called Polycarp. It's not a popular name, but you may want to consider it if you're expecting a child. Now, a few years later, this chap, Polycarp, he was in his mid-twenties, we think, when the letter arrived, he was made the bishop of Smyrna, quite an illustrious and important position. And if we fast-forward 60 years... When he was 86 years old, he was rounded up by an angry mob of pagans and Jews, and he was burnt at the stake and killed for being a Christian. And he said this, I bless you, Heavenly Father, for judging me worthy of this hour, so that in the company of the martyrs I may share in the cup of Christ. Now, obviously, I didn't know Polycarp personally, but I wonder if his long-term memory was quite good. Maybe he'd remembered these words, be faithful even unto death. What courage. But even as we admire people like Polycarp for that, we shudder at the thought, don't we? I shudder at the thought of that. I take it we all do. Honestly, in recent times with the rise of ISIS or ISIL, I've gone through patches of wondering how would I cope if someone made me choose between my Christ and my life and honestly I I worry I'd make the wrong choice put under that sort of pressure I I reckon many of us will have thought that through and I look at someone like Polycarp with wonder I think how could he make that choice he he could have just recanted his faith so easily couldn't he to avoid that death but he, he didn't And it makes me ask that question, why or or how? Verse 10, do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. How did he obey that command? Well, the secret is in the remainder of verse 10, and this is glorious for us Christians. This is the answer to the why. Be faithful even at the point of death, and I will give you, says Jesus Christ, life as your victor's crown or the crown of of life. And so our fourth point is this, do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. Stay faithful even to the point of death. Why? Because God will protect you and crown you. Now Smyrna apparently was well known for his athletic games and the accompanying crowns or wreaths that were given to people on the the podium. In fact so much so that the the, the city logo had become a, a crown or a wreath. And so the crown here is not for Queen Elizabeth II or someone royal, but it's an athlete's prize. I will give you the crown of life. And it transports us as the listeners, the readers, back to London 2012, just a few years ago. And do you remember that Super Saturday where we won three gold medals in just one hour, if you're GB? Do you remember that? The nation was enthralled there in the stadium and behind our television screens, and we were watching as the GB athletes just queued up to receive gold medal after gold medal after gold medal. It was wonderful. That's what this moment is about. I will give you the crown of life. It's that stadium hush before the Christians in Smyrna stand on the podium And the crowd erupt with joy and applause. So much so that it draws a tear from the athlete's eye. It's that moment which is being talked about here. And for the Smyrnian church, this is the moment when the poverty they had endured for their faith just faded away because the riches of verse 9 came into, into view. But you are rich. It was the moment when their slander and unpopularity just evaporated away as they were celebrated, vindicated, given the crown of life. It was the moment when the pain of maybe their martyr's deaths, Polycarp's death, just ebbed away as he settled in for an eternity which couldn't hurt him. End of verse 11. For this is the crown of eternal life. This is vindication, it's victory. That's what this moment is. And Jesus says, therefore, stay faithful. Don't be afraid of what you're about to, to, to suffer. And who is the prize giver? Who has such things at his disposal to bestow? It's not some unknown dignitary who needs introducing to us over the echoing tannoy who's never, no one's ever heard of did you see who it was? Verse 8, these are the words of him who is the first, capital F, and the last, capital L, who died and came to life again. Friends, the one who's doing the crowning on this day is God himself, capital G. The one who, if I can put it like this, is the bookends of history, the first and the last. Did you ever in your history classroom at Primary school have a timeline. You know, the Romans are on there somewhere, and you sort of well, imagine drawing that timeline as back as far as you possibly can go, round and round your classroom, in as much time as you've got. And then you ask the question having gone back all the way before the beginning of time itself, have we now preceded God? Is He now in the future tense? And He says, No, I am who I am. I am the first. Or you take that timeline and you run around the classroom the other way, as far into the future as you possibly can until you run out of energy and ink. And you say, is God now in the past? Have we succeeded him? And he says, no, 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 I am who I am. I am always in the present tense. I'm the first and I am the last. And therefore, if we are wondering who has the last word on us as we die, after we die... Who has the final move of the chess pieces as far as our lives are concerned? It's him, he is the last, he gets the last laugh and the last word, he's the last. And if there's anyone here wondering whether all this is wishful thinking to the nth degree driven by a fear of death so that we write fiction, we might well ask the question, how could we test this sort of claim? Well, I wonder whether the test comes at the end of verse 8. Who died and came to life again. How do you test Jesus' claim to be the last, capital L? Well, let me suggest that we test his claim to be the last by throwing the ultimate ending at him and seeing whether he outlasts it. By throwing the ultimate full stop at him and seeing if he continues writing. Or the ultimate terminus at him and seeing if he carries on going or throwing the ultimate death at him and seeing if he comes back to life and boy is the answer yes the full stop couldn't stop him the terminus couldn't stop him death couldn't hold him death where is your sting if you're a skeptic here we'd love to talk to you about the evidence for his resurrection it is concrete That is how he can make these claims. So do you remember where we began? I'm very cautious when somebody tells me not to be afraid of something which I fear. And I fear prison, I fear death. I want to know that that person is a realist, that he knows, or she knows, the dangers they're talking about. Now, Jesus Christ knows. He says, I know. He's a realist. Not like Aunt Agatha. I want to know that they have some power over that fear, that danger. And he does. He's overcome it himself. And therefore, I want to suggest we can be comforted by these words. He is a realist and he speaks truth to us. That's what Polycarp knew. And that's what we can know. I'm going to close with a famous exchange between a 4th century church father called John Chrysostom and the Empress Eudoxia. was threatening him with banishment for his preaching and his faith let me read it to you John Chrysostom says this you cannot banish me for this world is my father's house but I will kill you said the Empress no you cannot for my life is hid with Christ in God said John I will take away your treasures no you you cannot For my treasure is in heaven and my heart is there, but I will drive you away from your friends and you will have nobody left. No, you cannot, for I have a friend in heaven from whom you cannot separate me. I defy you, for there is nothing you can do to harm me. Let's pray. He or she who has an ear, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He or she who overcomes will not be hurt at all by the second death. Heavenly Father, would we prove our ability to hear what the Spirit has said to us today in the way we live our lives this week. For Jesus' name's sake. Amen.